0: Welcome into the Inside the Pylon Quick Kicks Podcast. Chuck Zada and Mark Schofield here as your hosts. If you missed yesterday's episode, you missed part one of our interview with former Oakland Raiders CEO Amy Trask. So before you do anything else, I'd advise you to go back and listen into that episode just because it really helps to set the stage for what we are going to be talking about today. And we do have Amy with us again today, fortunately, uh, able to take a little bit more time to dig through some additional uh, in-depth questions regarding her time in the NFL and with the Raiders. And Amy, where I want to start today, we talked a lot about your path through the NFL to this point, but I want to start to look a little bit towards the future here. And specifically, if you look at where the NFL is going over the next 10 years, Talk to me a little bit about the direction that you would take the on-field product, as well as when you look at the NFL from a business perspective, where do you think the league should be heading from that point of view?
1: Well, look, we all know the the on-the-field issue um, concerns the impact of the game. You know, when I started my career, it was early. It was one of my first years, and I was standing with a group of people and in the presence of, of some players as well. They were included in the group. Um, I mentioned, I I referred to the game as a contact sport, and one of the players very graciously um, interjected, Amy, it's not a contact sport. It's a collision sport. And he was right. It is a collision sport. Um, The league is doing what it can to teach people from a very, very young age up Better ways to play the game. Look, men, every day of my career, there was a sign in the locker room. See what you hit. Those aren't recent signs. Those are signs that date date back decades and decades. I, I can't remember the first time I saw that. See what you hit. And that's heads up football. And, you know, I do like what the league is doing at the youth levels to go back and re educate people about how to play a very, um, you know, call it contact, call it collision sport, as safely as one can. Now, does that mean one can take all the risk out of the game? No, of course it does not. Do we all understand the risks associated with playing the game? Yes, we're learning them. We will learn more. And, you know, the best thing we can hope is that when people make a choice whether or not to play football, they make an educated decision and play it as safely as possible. So that's the on-field issue. Um, but I, I, I just always, you know, as this conversation has gotten louder and louder and stronger and stronger, I've always remembered the words of that player who stopped me and said, no, Amy, it's not a contact sport. It's a collision sport. Um, off the field, you know, we'll, we'll talk again. The, the, the gap between the highest and the lowest revenue clubs put some strain on how the league chooses to do business and I think we're going to continue to see the league explore and experiment with overseas expansion they may believe that at some point revenue opportunities are maxed out or close to maxed out in, you know, nationally and they want to keep going globally and I, you know, look um, there's, there's the, the ether if you will and we're going to see the league continue to do interesting things Um, on all the various technological platforms, and we're going to see the league continue to explore games in other countries.
0: Amy, I want to transition now. Uh, If uh, I'm looking at this right, you have a book that's coming out in about three months. I think uh, the date that I see here is September 15th, 2016. Uh, I wonder just in general if you can give us a sense of what the focus is for the book and what you are trying to uh, really convey as the main theme or message of it.
1: You know I don't know that there's one particular theme or message um, other than if you wanted to say um, me sharing my um reflections and my thoughts in as honest a manner as I can and there's sort of three areas in that regard. I certainly share anecdotes and stories and reminiscences and moments throughout my career um, with some icons of the game, and some are are very. Um, silly moments, funny moments, surprising moments. Some are very touching. At least they were to me. Moments, um, meaningful moments. Um, a peek behind some closed doors. Um, you know, certainly I talk about experiences I had in the owners meetings at league meet. You know, the two per club owners meetings, the one per club owners meetings. Um, I talk about my interactions with Al in many regards, but I also touch upon the theme of women in business and women in a male-dominated business, and how I approached an issue like that, how I comported myself, what worked for me. Um, I address the question I'm often asked, what advice would you give a young woman who wants to go into business or a male-dominated business? And the third area really are just business reflections in general on some of the topics he raised, the state of the game, the challenges to the league, things of that nature. So there's not one theme to the book. I guess the theme would simply be my, my, my views on these topics. Amy,
2: what does happen at an owner's meeting? As somebody that's got no absolute clue what goes on there, is there anything you could share with us to shed a little bit of light on what goes on there?
1: Well, there's a variety of types of owner's meetings. There are you know the big meetings that happen every March where there's many, many people from each club. Most meetings at which the real meat and substance and business of the league is done, are what are called two-per-club meetings or one-per-club meetings. And the one-per-club meetings are designed to be owners only. But as Al's um, health grew worse, and as he, even before his health was, the challenge it was towards the end of his life, as he chose to not go to those, I had the privilege of attending the one-per-club meetings. And the dynamic in the meetings is very different if they're one and if they're two as opposed to if they're three or more. And it's fascinating. Um, The the most fascinating dynamic from my perspective and this spanned over a quarter of a century is the relationship and the interaction between the league office, the staff of the NFL office itself, and the owners. Because at the end of the day, the 32 owners, Own that league and how those individuals choose to delegate authority and defer to the league office has always been something that has fascinated me.
0: You made a transition about three years ago from the front office to the broadcast booth. And I'm curious how your time there helped to inform what you do today, but also in terms of whether or not there's a change in how you think of Uh, things related to the game of football, coming at it from a different perspective now?
1: Um, Well, I I suppose the biggest um, paradigm shift, if you will, and it took me a year or so on TV to figure this out. Frankly, I think I'm still figuring this out. For all my years with the Raiders, I was keenly aware that everything I said didn't reflect upon me as much or... Stated differently, It reflected on the Raiders and then really the National Football League as much as it reflected on me. In other words, I don't want to quibble as to whether it reflected on me more or less, so let me just put it this way. I was so measured in everything I said publicly while with the team because as much as it reflected on me, it reflected on Al, it reflected on the Raiders, and to some extent, but a lesser one, on the National Football League. So I was very, very cautious and measured in how I spoke. When I first started on television, um, well, first of all, I was horrified. I was terrified. I was horrified. Bart Scott held my hand, literally. He actually held my hand during the commercial breaks to calm me down enough so that I'd actually stay on set after each commercial break. because. To me, going on television was facing my biggest fear, which is a camera. But I did it, and I'm learning to relax, and I'm finding each year that I get more and more relaxed because I realize now what I say reflects only on me, and that's very, very liberating. I can say something that may not be the smartest thing to say publicly, and that's okay. Because it doesn't reflect on or harm anyone but me. And that's a lot of fun. So watch out this year because I'm relaxed now. Here we go.
2: Here we go. Amy, I want to ask you about Twitter. Because a lot of people use Twitter in different ways. For me, it's always kind of... Uh, maybe I'm just an easily intimidated person because it's intimidated me a little bit, much like the Raiders Nation has. But you're one of the more interesting people out there on Twitter. The way you engage with the people that follow you, and has that also sort of been helpful in what you're doing now and liberated in a way it, because you can express it, yourself oh that gosh. way?
1: Oh, my gosh! When I when I left the Raiders, you know, people asked me. You know, I started, and and, and people at, at the network at CBS said, you know, are you going to go on Twitter? And I said, absolutely, positively not. I will never tweet. I will never go on Twitter. Absolutely, positively not. Well, then I decided I would go on Twitter. And I swore I would hate it. All right, I'm going to do it, but I know I'm going to hate it. Men, I have taken to Twitter like it is my mothership. I, I just have so much fun with it. And you're right. It is liberating. I am myself without concern for how or what I do and how it, what I do and how it may reflect on anyone but me. I will tell you, loved ones, walk by me and shake their head and say, "Who are you and what have you done with Amy?" They are astonished that I'm on Twitter, let alone how much I love it. But on a very, very serious note, as much as I love it and I have fun with it, I really do believe a platform like Twitter can be world-changing. And I believe if we can use platforms like Twitter to communicate internationally, to share ideas with people around the world, to agree to disagree, to disagree agreeably, to engage in civil discourse, you know what? Maybe we can solve some problems collectively as a world. And you know what? I I, I don't think that's impossible. I think it's very, very, very possible. So I just love me some Twitter.
0: Well, it is, at the end of the day, isn't that what we're talking about with football anyways? It's, look, we're going to beat each other up on the field, but we're still just part of the same game just trying to do the same thing when it's all said and done.
1: Right, you know, a love of the game. And, you know, it, it, I engaged in a little bit of a Twitter back and forth with Mike Pereira recently.
0: Named his book. and
1: You know. As in a few, yeah, I did name his book for him. <laughs> um, he, he, you know, and I think I'm going to demand some royalties if he takes that name. Um, but but a point I made after that is Mike and I can disagree as much as we do about various officiating issues, whether it's the Tuck rule or whether it's um, the disparate. My, in my view, the disparate. Um, enforcement of, of holding, whether offensive or in particular, Mike and I have had sort of very, very loud, ferocious disagreements about defensive holding over the years. But at the end of the day, you know what? We both love the game of football. And, you know, look, I'm on the phone right now, I'm on a podcast, I should say, with a Patriot fan. So let me bring up that issue of the tuck rule, because I'm often told, Amy, get over it. And you know what? The fun of sports if we don't need to get over things. We can continue debating and teasing and arguing agreeably and having fun. There's a lot of things in life we need to get over. And you know what? Sports isn't one of them. So we can continue to have a banter with people. And you know what? That, too, starts a dialogue.
2: Well, I mean, Amy, I wasn't going to bring up the tuck rule, but since the door has been opened...
1: Yeah, what, I did that, didn't I? Yeah.
2: I mean... I won't ask you whether it was a fumble because we all know it wasn't. But uh, was any part... I, I Actually, I think I saw this on Twitter recently. It was, I think it was Judy Batista who talked about your reaction in that moment afterwards. And was any of your reaction suitable, shall we say, for what we'd like to consider a family-friendly show?
1: No, no, it's not. Um, and Judy, very aptly, I guess... First of all, I, I didn't realize at the time until... Judy has shared, other people have shared, um, people sitting right next to me have shared, that I really did resemble Linda Blair from The Exorcist, you know, the part where her head spins in circles and, you know, the green stuff spews out. Apparently, I did a very good Linda Blair only without the green stuff, I guess. Um, And a funny story is that years later, Mike Silver wrote um, an article for Sports Illustrated in which he quoted someone as to what i said and there was a word that he used in the story that i won't use on your show and when i read that story i, I looked at my husband and i said i didn't say that i didn't say <laughs> that i'm calling sports <laughs> illustrated right now i didn't say that and my husband looked at me and said no that's right you didn't say it and then i got really indignant i'm calling sports illustrated right now and he said let, let me tell you what you did say Uh-oh. and the only thing is I used that expletive in a different part of the sentence. So, yeah, Judy's description was probably pretty apt.
0: So we we just relived probably one of the toughest things for you to watch on an NFL field. What what was the most rewarding thing that you ever, either on-field or off-field, the most rewarding feeling that you ever had in the game?
1: Well... The on-field moment I would identify was when Zach Crockett scored um, with not a whole lot of time left when we were hosting um, the championship game in Oakland, and by that point, I was not watching with another. I, I, I had hidden myself away. I was so nervous, and, and I had sort of finished all my responsibilities during the game, and it was the tail end of the game, and I had just – I was I – was, Really, tucked into a corner of our Spanish radio booth. I don't know how I ended up there, but I was in the corner by myself, and Crockett scored, and I realized we're going to the Super Bowl. And um, you know from that moment when I realized we are going to the Super Bowl until the feeling one week later when we lost that game, um, you talk about a The the widest, widest, widest gap in emotions that one can experience, that was it. And, um, you know, coulda, shoulda, woulda, there's a lot of coulda, shoulda, wouldas about that Super Bowl, but I sure as heck wish that we were not one of those two or so beta test years where there was only one week between the championship game and the Super Bowl, because we only had one week to go down and face a team coached by someone who knew us better than anybody. Um, But... They won, we lost, but that most um, exciting moment for me would have to be when Zach... And and by the way, every single person in that stadium knew Zach Crockett was getting that ball. Um, Everybody knew it. The opposing team knew it, and he got the ball and he scored. So, you know, there's a zillion moments that I've loved on the field throughout my career, but that was very special.
2: Super Bowl week in itself. I mean, as you pointed out, you guys only had the one week to get ready for it, and a tough situation I mean most teams they Super Bowl even though two weeks are just a whirlwind and how much of a blur was that week leading up to the game?
1: Well it was and you know when you listen to people and every time every year I hear this now I just cringe and I think coulda, shoulda, woulda um, when you hear coaches talk now we heard Ron Rivera talk about it last year we heard Gary Kubiak talk about it which is teams use that first week to tell their players get your lives in order deal with your ticket requests deal with your travel requests, get your lives in order week one because come week two, we are football men, just football. We didn't have a week one. So that whole week, everybody was scrambling to do everything. And, you know, it wasn't fair to the players. It wasn't fair to the coaches. Um, I, I would be the loudest voice in, in America saying if the league ever decides to do a one-week gap again, that's a, a, an enormous mistake. And I wish we had two.
0: Outstanding. Well, Amy, we uh, unfortunately are just about out of time, and to be honest, don't want to keep you longer than we have to. But this has been absolutely outstanding. I know uh, you know Mark and I had wanted to be able to chat with you for a while now, and it's it's been everything uh, that we wanted in terms of being able, really, I think, just to get some some great answers to questions that not only we find interesting, but I think a lot of people looking at the NFL from the outside, you know, really don't have a great sense about.
1: Well, men, let me tell you in all sincerity, this has absolutely positively been my privilege and my pleasure. I'm a big, big, big fan of the work you men do. Um, I apologize if I talk too much, uh, but you guys ask such fascinating questions. You got me going. And it was my privilege and my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: It has been absolutely phenomenal. And we will look to get you back on maybe sometime later this year uh, when the book is close to coming out. We'll get you on to chat again. Uh, But until then, Amy, uh, best of luck, and we'll catch up with you soon, okay? Thanks, man. Thanks, Amy. Amy Trask, former CEO of the Oakland Raiders. As you heard... We're done for the day. We will be back tomorrow talking a little bit of Minnesota Vikings with Arif Hassan from Cold Omaha. That is tomorrow on the Inside the Pylon Quick Kicks podcast. We'll see you then.